0: We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to oncom slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, or code roll All right, Adam Skolnick is back and it's time to take roll call. Let's do the show. All right, what's going on everybody? Welcome to another edition of Roll On where me and my hype man, Adam Skolnick, who's sitting across from me right now, my bestie journeyman, journo, adventurer, author, environmentalist, break down topics of public interest. Yes. Today's gonna be a bit of an election extravaganza. So if you're burned out on that, I understand, but we're not gonna let this moment pass without sharing a few thoughts about that. In addition to our typical teachable moments, a little show and tell, some listener questions, and as always, uh, kicking it off with a little fitness check-in. But I think today, Adam, we should start with how our mental fitness is doing.
1: Yeah, well, you tell me, how are you feeling? Where were you when all this stuff was going
0: down? It's been a roller coaster. Yeah. I feel good today. I'm definitely feeling a sense of relief. I feel like I can breathe. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel calm, like my blood pressure is settling in. And I think it didn't really become completely apparent to me until I was watching uh Harris and Biden deliver their speeches yep. uh, the other night. Saturday and could, night. And I could just feel myself settling and I was much more emotional than I expected to be. <laughs> because I think those speeches were great. Yeah. But in the grand scheme of things, they were relatively banal, but in juxtaposition to what we've been enduring over the last four years, I felt like they were exactly what we needed to hear. And um And it all kind of like dawned on me how much tension and anxiety I had been holding, even while simultaneously trying to create healthy boundaries between myself and the news cycle, you know, out of self-preservation to just exercise a little bit of self-care amidst all the chaos and insanity.
1: Yeah, it's like we've been trapped in solitary confinement listening to death metal. For four years, and then uh, Kenny G in came Guantanamo through. And, in Guantanamo or something. In Guantanamo, and then Kenny G came through, and you're like, I always hated Kenny G, but boy, it's beautiful.
0: <laughs> That's a pretty good analogy, I think.
1: Uh, but no apologies to death metal. I didn't mean to insult death metal like that.
0: How's your uh, How's your
1: mental state? You know, I'm good now. It was uh, It was funny, like. I've been very positive. I've been very, I, I've believed that there was a chance to win this whole time, but on on Tuesday when it was not going well, uh, I have to admit, I did not feel like, it didn't mm-hmm. feel like a win. Yeah. It felt like we were going somewhere dark. It felt like, uh, and I wasn't shocked by it. I'm not shocked by the numbers Trump got, and we'll talk about why. We're
0: gonna get into all of that. But,
1: um, but and I wasn't surprised at the time, and I wasn't like affected like I ha- I was four years before, you know, where I was really, really, really upset. Mm-hmm. Um, this time, I was like, okay, trying trying to stay on top of it, and then the next day, uh, waking up to better news, and then following it throughout the course of the day on Wednesday and into the night, where it looked good um, again. I felt like I could sleep well. I wasn't like super consumed with it, and then on Thursday, when like we had turned the corner. And I think by the, I forget what time it was that uh, we took the lead. We were on our way taking the lead, we meaning Biden, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, and all of that. Right when it started looking really good, I started freaking the fuck out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I was like, I was like, is this gonna work? And I couldn't sleep. And I checked like three times in the middle of the night. And like I was, uh, I was, I don't know why, but I was like, I was afraid like it was all gonna be like a mirage. And evaporate.
0: The rug was gonna get pulled out from underneath you. Yeah. And, and I think that's like yeah. PTSD from the experience of 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 the last four years, knowing that anything is possible yeah. at any given moment. I mean, my experience was a little bit um the opposite. The first evening, coming into the dawning realization that so many people had had voted for This person that I have such strong opinions about was a difficult pill to swallow, and I've been processing that over the last week, and I have some thoughts I wanna share about that. That was a struggle for me, but then the following day and the days that have followed, I found myself in a state of greater equanimity increasingly. Like yeah every hour that passes
1: i'm with you and like after that really bad night's sleep on th- thursday i just realized i'm too i'm too close to it i'm too attached to it it's going well just let go mm. and then and i have not even come close to touching the like uh, angst over who voted for trump i mean like to me it's like one thing at a time and the one thing is biden won we're in a better position today than we were yesterday there's lots of work to do, but I'm not doing that work right now. I'm going to take a deep breath and uh, be happy where we are right now. Yeah, and that's kind of where I I would advocate everyone should be at the moment because no one's like unless you're in Georgia, there is no big electoral fight anytime soon. Georgia's the exception. So then um, let's let's start to build and figure out the best strategy going forward. But at the mm-hmm. moment, um, worrying about and 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 you know blaming and shaming. Uh, I don't think it's the time right now. It's the time is to celebrate and and be content with where we are and figure out how to get forward.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, before launching into the, the bullseye of yeah. this whole issue, while we're still <laughs> technically talking about our fitness check-in. Oh, right. Uh, I think we should give a shout out to our boy, Davey, who's taking pictures over here, who just ran his first half marathon. Davey by passively absorbing the podcast content over the last couple months. Mm. Took it upon himself to start running for the very first time. Conquered his first 13.1. Shout out, brother. It's amazing. Good job. Um, You're built all like right. a runner. The big story, the election, thoughts. We talked a little bit about the speeches. Yep. Uh, Those speeches are set in juxtaposition against this background hum of count the votes, don't count the votes. That's funny. This idea, this trope of media doesn't decide elections, courts decide elections. I thought voters decide elections, but okay. Uh, All culminating in this kind of glorious, desperate, pathetic display of Rudy Giuliani at the Four Seasons (laughs) Total Landscaping Company, which is so impossibly delicious. It's like and a yet, step down from
1: Borat too. Like he keeps finding new it, it, ways. <laughs> it
0: really is like out of Veep, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think the important thing, and I don't wanna spend too much time on this, is that it triggers my, my kind of instinctual desire for some level of schadenfreude. And right. that's an unhealthy impulse. Like as funny as that is, I think it's quite beside the point. And to kind of start, I'd like to begin with, The experience that I was having on the eve of election night when it became uh, adamantly apparent that this was gonna be a very close race, that there was a tremendously large swath of America that were voting for Trump. And this idea that despite the rampant corruption that we've experienced over the last four years, the blatant self-dealing, the incessant lying, the pernicious and sociopathic egomania, the science denialism, this reprehensibly bungled pandemic response, the utter failure to lead, the unabated cronyism, the autocratic self-congratulating, the climate change denial, and the pathetic utter refusal to concede to reality and instead crouch behind bloviating bluster and megalomania, all supported by a propagandist media machine called Fox and a lily-livered Republican legislature too afraid to challenge the baby king and this foamy AR-15 armed base caravanning across America and this weaponized campaign of social media disinformation led by QAnon and others, we awake to this realization, this undeniable realization that nearly half of America decided more of this guy How is this possible? And this was the pain point for me on Mm -hmm. that evening. Mm -hmm. And as the days unfolded afterwards, we see 70 million votes for Trump. 57% of white Americans voted for Trump. 32% of the Latinx uh, community voted for Trump. Trump had gains with black, Latin, and Asian communities. Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham were reelected. Republicans retain control of the Senate. Kushner is now pushing for new Trump rallies. and we even have Emily Murphy, this Trump appointee who's refusing to release transition team funds and this um, inability to kind of acknowledge that that Biden has carried the day. And all of this leaves me in a place of trying to understand what is going on and 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 what of what all of this means. And mm-hmm. I think what where I've arrived is that, you know, the the first inclination is the reality of America is, is, is not what I thought it was. But I think a more healthy lens through which to perceive all of this is to understand and really like grok that America really never has been the progressive ideal that we hold it out to be. No. And this realization of just how divided and split we are has shed light on a system of systemic ills that have always been there, Mm -hmm. right? And if you were to ask a black person, a person of color, a minority, they would tell you, yes, this is my experience all the time. And I think white America is waking up to um, a more crystallized uh, uh, sense of all of this.
1: Yes, Uh, well said, man. Uh, A couple of things kind of jumped to mind. One is, I thought I liked it when you read my resume, but when you read Trump's resume, it's even better. I like that 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 soliloquy. of all always and I want i
0: I want to, you know, quickly, you know, at some point soon pivot into, you know, solutions because I have thought a little bit more deeply about this, but go ahead.
1: Um, but uh you know, I think like I said, I have not focused on on who voted for Trump um because for a long time, I've, I I knew you know in my mind I was never I never really thought. Look, it's never as bad or as great as they say it is, right? So for years, you know, as we grew up, we've been taught you know the, these myths of America, and there's truth in myth, but it's not all truth. Um, there's truth in history, but it's one p- perspective of truth, and so uh, we create in our own minds this this this. Version of America that we experience, but it's never it's never the great ideal. It never was the great ideal that they taught, and it's not as bad as we like to think of it sometimes. Now, you know, it's not it's never it's never as great and it's never as awful. That's my feeling about mm-hmm. certainly about America. Um, but yeah, no, it's never been the progressive ideal. I think that the one thing Trump has given us is this revelation of some deep fissures and deep problems that we haven't dealt with for a long time. I think that, you know, that it, it, four years ago, uh, when Dave Chappelle hosted Saturday Night Live right after the election, w- one of the skits that sticks out for me is him and Chris Rock went to a, an election night party and they were joking, because all the white people were like in tears and, you know, America might be racist and they were laughing about it, because right. exactly what you're saying. But, um but now it's right right there out in the open and maybe worse than anybody has thought um but the 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 problem is we need to figure out a way we have such deep problems that we need to figure out a way to bridge this bizarre gap you know i think i, I read we're gonna get into some some of the reading but roxanne gay's uh op-ed in the new york times um kind of encapsulated it for me Mm. Um, and she- That's the
0: I'm shattered, but I'm
1: ready to fight article. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And she wrote, the United States is not at all united. We live in two countries. In one, people are willing to grapple with racism and bigotry. We acknowledge that women have a right to bodily autonomy, that every American has a right to vote and the right to health care and the right to a fair living wage. We understand that this is a country of abundance, and that the only reason economic disparity exists is because of a continued government refusal to tax the wealthy proportionally. The other United States is committed to defending white supremacy and patriarchy at all costs. Its citizens are the people who believe in QAnon's conspiracy theories and take Mr. Trump's misinformation as gospel. They see America as a country of scarcity, where there will never be enough of anything to go around. So does every man and woman for themselves." They are not concerned with the collective because they believe any success they achieve by virtue of their white privilege is achieved by virtue of merit. They see equity as oppression. They are so terrified, in fact, that as the final votes were counted in Detroit, a group of them swarmed the venue shouting, stop the count. In Arizona, others swarmed a venue shouting, count the votes. The citizens of this version of America only believe in democracy that serves their interests.
0: I think that there is some truth in that. Yeah. But I also think it's important to point out In some respects, I think that paints a somewhat unfair picture of a lot of Trump voters. I think there's uh, a large swath of people that just feel very strongly about pro-life and they're willing to overlook all of President Trump's, you know, uh, issues because that is of paramount importance to them. And I also think there's a lot of people who bristle at identity politics. And I think there's a conversation to be had around the extent to which the overly woke community tipped certain voters in a particular direction. Like, there's a lot of people who just, when they hear defund the police, the lights go out and they don't want any part of that conversation. Mm. And they're going to vote for Trump, knowing full well that, you know, he is who he is. And I think that we need to have an honest conversation about the extent to which you know these conversations around equality um you know move us in the right direction or move us away from you know the shared common good that we seek
1: i agree i mean i think there the the progressive people are 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 painting already very bold lines in an us versus them fashion and uh i agree that that's why i'm not touching that 70 million number and letting that make me feel worried about the condition of america because i was already worried about the condition of America. I already know that we have misinformation. I already know that we have division. I already know that we have people in the streets actually already fighting out little skirmishes. I get it, I know that. But the progressives who have the biggest ideas on how to fix problems like uh, s- systemic inequality, whether it's uh, ethnic, racial, or economic, um, you know, fighting climate change, climate justice, social justice, um, preserving wildlands preserving marine protected areas all these kinds of things these big ideas it's going to take more than half the country mm-hmm. it's going to take more than 50% of us if there's 70 million over there we got to get 10 we got to get 15 million of
0: them and in order to do that you have to fundamentally understand and appreciate the importance of coalition building and reaching across the aisle which yes. gets into you know a perhaps underappreciated advantage of somebody like Joe Biden, yes. which we're gonna unpack in a minute. And yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And as much as I adore AOC and so many of the ideals that she stands for, and I just have so much respect for her energy and enthusiasm and her ability to um, you know, articulate difficult concepts and you know, hold truth to power Absolutely. and all the things that she does. When she tweeted the other day that we need to kind of make this list of people and hold them accountable, there's an aspect of that that I can get on board with. Like, okay, like let's not forget how we got here. At the same time, I'm not sure that that's really the productive way forward if we wanna establish the kind of coalitions we're gonna need in order to enable the change that we'd like to see.
1: Right, I mean, of, of the 70 million who voted for Trump, 10% of them is the stat I heard voted for Obama. Mm-hmm. Um, so 10% of that 70. Seems like that should be up for grabs. Um, We have to communicate in good faith. Uh, I'm with AOC when it comes to finding out who separated children, who made those orders. You know, we have 550 kids whose parents were sent away and deported and weren't kept track of. And now we have 500, we have, I guess it's 500 kids here that we don't know when they'll, or if they'll ever see their parents again. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a crime against humanity. People who committed crimes against humanity. And I put uh, Kristen Nielsen, who was head of DHS in that category. I will will gladly put her in there as my personal opinion. Um, and I will put anybody who oversaw that and was a part of that and a party to that, that's a crime against humanity. The only way that you can get redemption and keep going in public life, in my opinion, after committing a crime like that, is to have some sort of justice around it, which is if a restorative justice would be coming out and telling people what happened and exactly how it happened and what your role was in it and ask for forgiveness, Uh, but no more denial that this is the same Mm -hmm. policy that Obama had, no more denial that it didn't happen. Um, so those people, I think they belong on a list of investiga- investigation should be really conducted and figure that out. Um, people who are having office jobs, I think that's just a little bit too much for me.
0: Yeah, we have to be careful that we're not fomenting some form of McCarthyism. Right. That's gonna exacerbate the divide that we need to hear. No, no, right you don't,
1: you know McCarthyism, but but if there was a crime, I think that's okay to investigate, mm-hmm. and if it was just these people worked for Trump, um, I don't think that's fair enough, right? Yeah, yeah. Because what if? Because the problem is once you do that, and then the pendulum swings again, the people that work for you, AOC, are going to be on some list, right? And that's not very. Safe. It
0: always it always swings back the other way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that there's a short sightedness that these um, you know policies that we set in motion remain they persist when regime changes occur yeah. and then they rubber band backwards in the other direction
1: we've talked about this before that's yeah. the that's the problem with some of the progressive politics that we experience is they include ideals that are not liberal um there is a thought police speech police aspect mm-hmm. to it there is um a you know make us against them aspect to it um a superiority aspect to it and the other side has it too i mean like the right wings have this really skewed view of what a democrat is and because of the media domination on that side of things mm-hmm. um you know the it's not just fox news it's um it's the incredible conservative media empire that's all over the radio it's uh, their their incredible manipulation of Facebook and YouTube to dominate there they they dominate the media yeah they 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 hit people where they live and they spread messages that are to us unbelievable but if you get them enough, I guess they become believable. Like a guy like Biden, who's a center as you can get, being called a socialist. It's like, if you say the word socialist enough, people, it starts to stick.
0: Yeah, that's the amazing thing. I mean, this guy's been a centrist his entire life. He's the furthest thing from an ideologue. And by just perpetually repeating this mantra that he's a socialist and we should fear socialism, it somehow becomes true in the minds of millions of Americans.
1: Right, and the truth is, We've had corporate uh, welfare in this country for far too long. Oil company, oil companies get big federal subsidies. Is that socialism? Mm-hmm. Big agriculture companies get big federal subsidies. Is that socialism? Um, is Medicare socialism? Uh, is public education socialism? Yeah. Like, like we have to decide what is what, and at the same time, you know, as as Democrats that want to have bigger policy ideas around helping more people and creating a more equitable society, you have to get ahead of that argument.
0: Yeah. And and how do you do it? And I think the Democrats did a poor job at messaging particularly the Latin community around this, treating it more as a monolith than than it than it truly is. I mean, I think when you look at Florida and Dade County, yeah. you have a huge population of Cuban Americans who are who are scarred by, you know, the the communist legacy of Cuba. And any dint whatsoever of socialism is going to push them in the other direction because of their legacy and their history
1: that's true. I mean, but that community is is typically Republican anyway. I mean they were involved in the Bush and gore recount and and um but yes, and i th- I, I think I read there was disinformation around there, and then in Texas, there was a more kind of mexican American base that was also kind of conservative, moderate conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh mostly around pro-life issues, I think, right. and religion. Um, but in Arizona, the reason Arizona is looking blue right now is because of younger progressive Latinos. Right. So it, it it it's it's a moving target. I mean, like the idea to me, if I could have one solution, it would be two solutions. One, appoint Stacey Abrams as the head of the Democratic Party, uh-huh. Let her organizational genius kind of uh, basically, take over at the Democratic Party, and the other thing is, I think field offices have to be opened up in the middle of the country. We can't cede the middle of the country to to Republicans. You can't just say because we're not getting, we don't have the media reach, and we we're not we're not going to catch up to that anytime soon. So if 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 people are getting it in their phones, they're getting it at home, they're getting it in the car radio, they're getting it t- television. We got to have people knocking on their door saying, "No, this isn't how it is." Analog. You, know, like, you, you got to go analog to beat the digital. It's. I'm telling you, like it's like the landline is better tech than our cell phones. I love my landline. We need to have people. But
0: the, I don't organizing. even have a landline. Exactly. You know? And nobody's probably going to knock on my door. No. I think I think we also need to get a better handle on these digital tools. I mean, certainly, no. um, there's a lot to be learned, and there's so much danger there at the same time. But uh, they're not being marshaled properly.
1: Not by not by a Democrat. But I do think there's something about like a more physical presence, more like and and, you know, my friend Tom Zollner, who's a writer, um, was volunteering in Arizona, and he was he's he's from Arizona. He used to write for the paper there, um, and he uh, was assigned uh, to go to Kingman, Arizona, and I guess he was supposed to like be at a, vo- a polling place. Um, And at the polling place, they had too many volunteers there. So he got sent somewhere else. And he decided, you know what, they don't need me there. I'm gonna just get out the vote. I'm gonna knock on doors and get out the vote in Kingman, Arizona, small town, rural area. It's 38% Democrat, I think he wrote on Facebook. And uh he just took it upon himself, did the covered the entire town, and got like a half dozen to a dozen people to go out and vote that weren't going to vote mm. because the Democrats that lived there thought they'd been forgotten about they hadn't mm. been reached out to they hadn't been i mean this is according to him, and if that's happening in Kingman, Arizona, and Arizona is kind of a purple state, you know like that's not good news like the Democratic Party has to do a better job. Stacey Abrams registered eight hundred thousand voters or something in mm-hmm. in Georgia. Like we need that kind of energy. We don't need the the cozy up with celebrity energy anymore because that's part of the resentment, you know. There's too much. There's too much cozying up with celebrity. There's too much cozying up with um, with Silicon Valley. Too much cozying up with millionaires and billionaires and cultural elite. It's too much.
0: Well, it's repellent. Yeah, for a lot of people. And the most important thing you said is that these people feel like they've been forgotten. And I think there's a lot of people like that. And when when you're in that place and you feel like you have no agency and you're not being heard, and then you're getting messaged with political you know i don't even want to call it propaganda but messaging that triggers that fear impulse or exacerbates that sense of being forgotten that's going to marshal a powerful emotional reaction and instinct in people and the democratic party has done a terrible job at figuring out how to how to really answer to that and i think that's really where the work needs to needs to be, you know.
1: I agree. I mean, in 2008, but, Obama was a genius at grassroots organi- organizing. He didn't take um any contributions over a certain dollar amount. Mm-hmm. He had more small donations than a history of the presidential politics as far as I know in modern modern campaigns. Um and he he was a genius at it. And we need to get back to that. Um, you know, we need to re- we need a return of that. I mean, the one, one thing last thing I'll say on on cuz before we get to the Biden and kind of moving us forward, um there was a great politico article I shared with you. Right. America is eerily retracing Rome's steps to a fall. Will it turn around before it's too late? This came out, I think Monday
0: before the election or mm-hmm. on election it day. It was before, I think it was just before election day. Just
1: before election day. And it's not your typical like we're fucked because of Trump article. This is a historical deep dive into Julius Caesar. It's it's an mm-hmm. incredible read. I mean, I've I've recommended it to some people. Some people are scared by it. It's it's definitely eerie. Um, But what there are these crazy parallels that I never knew. I never knew Julius. Mm. You know, like I I was forced to read Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, but I don't. I don't recall ever knowing these kinds of details. details I know I sent
0: it to I sent it to Ryan Holiday because I felt like he could have written it because he's so steeped in Roman history. But the parallels between you know, the end of the Trump era and the end of Julius Caesar's reign are unbelievable. And well, this his is like first a, reign. Was, right, and yes. this is like a 5,000 word, you know, think piece, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> On
1: this whole thing. Just, I'll just give the highlights to the listeners. Uh, big sex scandals. Uh, Julius Caesar was rumored to actually have had, slept with a king prior, right. I <laughs> prior to his I, rise. I, that
0: I did not know. <laughs> yeah,
1: no. Um, he was very famous before he came into office. He was in crippling debt. He was despised by intellectuals. He promoted his own image with these ostentatious festivals and the Gladiator Games. So the, the Trump rally uh, thing is there. His opponents uh, ridiculed his attempts to disguise his balding. He mm-hmm. wore the oak wreath on his head because of his bald spot. <laughs> so the comb over. A, and he took his message
0: right to the people. It was yeah. like a, a preternatural Twitter. He did.
1: He rallied against the elites and he did it in this uh, um, something called Contio, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And it was, Contio was a public forum of debate where people from the left, the right, the center, everyone would come together and they'd scream at each other. But But they were actually a part of a political apparatus where ideas were kind of, debated there and some of those ideas ended up making it up to Senate and the Senate would adopt them into law if they were approved and all all of that. So it was this, it was a vital political forum and and he turned that completely upside down where he'd go there with his big following and he'd turn them into rallies where he'd rail against elites. And um, basically what happened was everything became so polarized on both sides. So, and that's what we're seeing here, right? So like the right is is aligned with Trump. The left is is angry, still angry, grieving, pissed off. You know, celebrating at the same time, dancing in the streets. But a lot of people are are still angry and 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 feeling like we got our country back. When you know, they're taking they're taking a pol- polarized view. What happened there was um, Julius Caesar. You know, Rome, the Republic crumbled, Julius Caesar ended up returning to Rome with a big army, mm-hmm. took over and installed himself as emperor for life until he was assassinated. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's basically the, that progression. Um, of course, Trump didn't win the election. This was the prediction if Trump had won the election, we mm-hmm. were going to be so. Now we have this opportunity, right, to to distance ourselves from this <laughs> Roman narrative, um, and that's where we're at. But but the conditions that we have, the polarization, all of that needs to be dealt with.
0: Yeah, it's very it's it's eerily similar in so many interesting ways. It's a fascinating read. We'll we'll link that up in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. But let's let's shift gears and get into how we're gonna move forward. Um, You know, like I said at the outset, as kind of hilarious as the four seasons total landscaping situation is. Yes. <laughs> I really feel it's important to resist that Schadenfreude impulse mm. and I think we need to start investing in how we're going to heal as a nation and you know coalesce and coexist because we are so split, you know. Yeah. Somebody who grew up, you know, grew up in Washington D.C. Uh, it was very much an inside the beltway environment. My dad was a government lawyer. My next door neighbor was a Republican senator. The director of the f b i lived around the corner and the school that I went to was filled with the kids uh you know the the sons of prominent politicians all across washington so mm. I was very much steeped in politics from right. a very young age and what i remember most aside from the fact that i was very up to speed on everything that was going on much more so until recent years um was the the comedy that existed across the aisle like mm. republicans and democrats coexisted in an environment of mutual respect to the point where you know i would We would go, go, yeah, there'd be dinner parties that you would get, and it would be Republicans and Democrats and everyone was hucking it up and getting along. Like there were differences and, um, you know, distinct, you know, a distinction in how these people would see the world and what they thought was best for the country. But there wasn't the acrimony and the divide and the inability to communicate that we see now, which is really like this disease that's infecting us at a rate that's far more fatal than what we're seeing with coronavirus, frankly. Mm. And I think if we're going to proceed and move forward as a country, we have to figure out a way to return to some level of that comedy. And that's one reason why on the eve of the election, I wrote that piece for Esquire, yeah. which is kind of about you know how to navigate the week to come and the weeks that follow. Great you know, piece. I wrote that. I wrote that. It, it, you know, it's not a political piece in any regard. It's really a self care piece. It's it's like, how, fantastic. how do we maintain some level of equanimity amidst the chaos? But implicit in all of that is this idea that we need to figure out how to communicate with each other, yes. the importance of meaningful conversation and what we try to do here on the podcast, and how we apply, you know, what I try to practice here in our daily lives with the people that we encounter and it's a tough pill to swallow and it's difficult because we're so disharmonized at the mm-hmm. moment and because we see things so differently and and that difference has been you know infected with this you know this this uh you know this sense of of confusion and acrimony that we all feel like it's an impossible bridge you know to to cross for for each other yeah um I loved Dave Chappelle's uh, opening monologue on Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. where, you know, that's a guy who could have gotten up and said all kinds of, you know, hilarious, but, you know, divisive things. And instead he sees that opportunity to to say like, I don't hate anyone. I hate that feeling that nobody cares about you, which speaks to what we just talked about, this yep. idea that there are, are so many people who feel overlooked in this world yep. and that, we need to find forgiveness and joy in our lives, right? And I think that's super powerful coming from a guy like that who you know, has become in many ways this, you know, this sort of you know, uh, comedian prophet for yeah. our times. He's a healer. He is a healer. Yeah.
1: Um, it also helps, I think part of his perspective, I, I don't think you could take away the fact that he lives in a small town in Ohio mm-hmm. where he's living around in farm country where right. it is red, red state. Land, yeah. yeah, and he's had good experiences there, and he's had negative experiences there. Where he talked in his comedy show, um, and uh, and but for the most part, he trusts his neighbors and likes his neighbors, and he just mm-hmm. wants to live life and like and enjoy people and love people, like we all do. I mean, that gives us like to me. Joe Biden is such an interesting person, and a, such an interesting moment for him. You know, to me, like he ran the classic rope-a-dope campaign, like we'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. He was never seen for for months. He didn't find him. He let Trump just throw all these wild punches and punch himself out, basically. And the bet was with a few kind of weeks of showing up in, in certain states with, with Obama and without Obama and wherever they went, you know, mostly Pennsylvania. I think there was a lot of Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, right? If mm-hmm. I remember correctly, mm-hmm. um, that that would be enough. And it almost was not enough, you know, because we picked a candidate that from my perspective at the time when, when Biden won, we were picking somebody who was as 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 blank as you can get
0: when he won the nomination? Yeah, I mean, when he won the nomination, you know. he was
1: just this blank guy that might appeal to people that we need to get to vote for us, and uh, in a in a way to get enough Trump Trump people to come on board or to get enough people turned out. He was nice, a nice guy that that you know that give Ber- Bernie Sanders a lot of credit. Uh, you know he he rallied progressives to to bond with Biden. The progressives themselves saw what happened last time, and they learned from their mistakes. Mm-hmm. And then he had Stacey Abrams and these great voter turnout machines that came up, and all, everything came up, and it helped Biden barely eke it out. Um, and at the time, when on Tuesday night when it wasn't looking good, I thought maybe the Democratic Party missed the boat. Maybe you mm-hmm. can't pick a blank guy that nobody really has strong feelings for or against, really, and make that your candidate even when the other guy is Trump. Maybe the idea of picking a guy who's just not that guy isn't the right move. Right. It turned out to be the right move. And and now I think he he's in an incredible position and he could be actually the right guy for this moment exactly for the reasons that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, I think there's... There's something to be said for that. I mean, when you, I'll be the first to admit that (laughs) I was hardly excited that Biden was the nominee. Yeah. There's just nothing that uh, inspired me about him. He's fine. Yeah. But here's a guy who's 78 years old. He's clearly lost a step. Um, You know, in that first debate, he did look very old. I wouldn't say feeble, but not energized in the way that somebody like Trump is. And he's a guy who ran a campaign You know, as this sort of blank slate individual, very much in opposition to Trump, as opposed to what he's for specifically, right? Yeah, this is a guy who's you know the furthest thing from socialist, has never been an ideologue in any regard. He's very much a pluralist, somebody who's always been a voice of compromise. I mean, when he first ran for Senate at twenty nine. It was like, well, what do you? What's your platform? Mm. And I don't think that he had a platform, and he'd probably admit to so much. Right, right. It right. was probably driven more by ambition at that time mm. than anything else. Mm. Um, there is no single issue that has ever animated him or any platform that he's put out there. It has been defined a campaign, defined you know, in many ways, simply in opposition to Trump. Yep. But Trump guy, dominated
1: the conversation.
2: Right, it was yeah. always
0: about you know why Trump's bad as opposed to what he's for. Yeah, not that he's not for certain things, and he didn't you know he articulated those throughout the campaign. But that got kind of backtracked by you know mattered less exactly. Yeah, you know this is a guy who's about, and I think to the to your point of like this might be you know the guy for the moment. This is a guy who's a negotiator. He's about procedure and process over passion. Um, he has this life experience that's been marked time and time again with with tragedy, and that's instilled this deep empathy um, that he has right now and the way that he carries himself. And it's very interesting that he's from Delaware, because if you look at Delaware on the map, it's like this symbol of centrism. Yes. It's right there, smack in the middle between, it's neither the South, it's neither the North, it's right in between. Yep. And that is kind of who this guy is, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um and that's how he approaches policymaking
1: he comes from that generation that you were talking about of the generation of comedy
0: right. comedy with a t by the and way that's his big thing like his yeah. big thing his big lament is the breakdown in communication right. in the senate he liked those and the parties la- and the lack of protocol <laughs> he liked going to those days. when dinners. he was able to attend them i yeah. mean when he was a young senator yeah. he was amtrak joe because he was right. always going back to delaware to that's take right. care of his to take care of his boys that's right. in the wake of his his Daughter and his wife perishing in that car accident. That's
1: right. Um, but I think Bernie embracing Biden. I think you're seeing uh, Mitt Romney and some senators that that do like Joe Biden. That that definitely helps. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we'll see. We'll see if he's going to have enough. You know, G- Georgia looms very large. There's two Senate seats that are out there. I feel very good about where Georgia's at. But Georgia, you know. And thank, thank you, Philly, and thank you, Atlanta, for rising up, and Detroit. I mean, these inc- incredibly uh, beautiful, cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic cities with incredible black traditions really saved this country. I think mm-hmm. that needs to be said. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. And Atlanta is this interesting case study because Atlanta is um, doing very well economically. It's becoming increasingly progressive. It's got uh, incredible history, um, positive history, you know, and, and now uh, it's got the Hollywood aspect of it. There's so mm-hmm. much Hollywood production there. Right. And so it's this, thr- it's in, in a in a time when there's a lot of economic crunch, pandemic aside, Atlanta, maybe now is not the right time to say this, but in general, over the last five years, Atlanta is really trending way up. It's mm-hmm. like one of these cities that's just booming and becoming a, a, a global city, right? And, um, and it's a success story and that's changing the way georgia votes. Mm. um it's very interesting to me that that that's happening and and now we have this moment where in a month if you get two senators then biden's really in a good position to govern. but if you don't if you get one or if you get if you get neither um then you know then we're going to see. we're going to see yeah. if if we can bridge that gap.
0: well just to conclude this um you know discussion about biden being the cipher for the moment, um, all of these things that we're discussing about his kind of personal proclivities, I think you know an argument, a solid argument, can be made that he is appropriate for this moment. You know, to kind of hearken it back to to um, what Dave Chappelle was talking about, and what we were speaking about earlier. We do need somebody who you know understands that there is this divide right now mm-hmm. and can. You know, listen, a centrist isn't the most exciting thing for anybody, but perhaps that centrist mentality can be a force for healing right now. And, you know, I hold out hope and I'm optimistic that he can unite us where um, where we need it most. We'll see. Definitely. Um, two final thoughts on that. The first is there's a very interesting deep dive on who Biden is as an individual. If you wanna learn a little bit more kind of you know, behind the curtain about what makes this guy tick. Ezra Klein uh, put up a great podcast the other day with this guy, Evan Osnos, who's a Biden biographer. And they kind of talk about um, the evolution of Biden over the years. And I found that to be very helpful in wrapping my head around who this human being is. Um, and secondarily, I loved how Bill Maher uh, closed out... <laughs> His latest um, show from Friday night, in his closing monologue, talking about uh, Blake Shelton and Gwen Stefani and their 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 impending nuptials as this symbol of reconciliation between red and blue, yes. <laughs> amidst this acrimonious election, calling them Rodeo and Juliet. You know, he's a good old boy who sings about trucks and beer, and she's the pop princess, Hollaback girl from California. And we need that, that marriage to work for America. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. yes As yes. a symbol that we can come together with his closing sentiment uh, that actually no president can unite us, but that we must unite ourselves. Yeah. And, and it comes down to that like question
1: I have for progressives who are still feeling like they want to. Kind of yes, we need to push for policies that are that are inclusive and that can help make some substantive substantive change. But when you instead of shaming people who voted for Trump for whatever reason, um, I would suggest uh, looking to bridge the gap. And and you know because it comes down to this: do we want to be right or do we want to be effective? Do we want to? be the ones that are superior or do we wanna be the ones that build a better world? Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what you're speaking to. And I, I also wanted to say uh, that, you know, you changed your entire, you pivoted in your podcasts. You took your podcast that was going very well, doing well for you. You didn't have to do anything. You could have stuck with the interview uh, and, and you decided to tackle some really thorny issues and get into some political discussions that are not necessarily... A lot of people would tell you not to have done that. And you decided to do that. And I think that um, that helped. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I hope so. I mean, I always, I struggle with this a little bit, like we were talking before the podcast, you know, there's certainly more that I could have done, but I felt strongly about making this pivot. And the pivot has been at my peril. You know, I know that I've lost listeners and followers as a result of it. Um, plenty of People have you know, freely left their one-star reviews <laughs> on Apple Podcasts <laughs> to voice their displeasure with me broaching you know, politics uh-huh. on the show. Uh, but I felt strongly that you know, I wanted to have these kind of conversations and I don't wanna be somebody who's shying away from them. And I understand that some might find it divisive or, or uh, unpalatable because it doesn't match their worldview. And that's okay. You yeah, know, that's okay. I mean, my hope is that, you know, look, I'd be delighted if I never had to talk about national politics again. Maybe this is the last one that we'll ever do. Right. Um, but in the meantime, this is what's going on in the world. This is what's top of mind for me. And I think having meaningful conversations that are laced with nuance are important as. A prerequisite for us moving forward as a healthy country. And I stand by it, you know, even if the show has shrunk as a result of it, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people who've, you know, celebrated the fact that I'm doing this as well. Yeah. I don't know how it all balances out, but I understand that it's controversial and controversy is not something that I've ever courted on this podcast. I've yeah. always used this modality as a way to reach the most number of people and to appeal to people of all walks of life and i maintain that desire but it can't come at the cost of speaking my personal truth whether you disagree with it or not
1: well, what, what what do you think you said you could have done more like what do you why why do you have that feeling still
0: well you can always do more yeah. right i mean i wasn't out like i have friends on social media that post constantly their right. political opinions and I made the decision not to go overboard on that, and to choose my moments, and to focus the advocacy that I wanted to do, you know, in front of this microphone rather than in visual form on Instagram, because I think it allows the the space for that kind of nuance yeah. that it that it requires. Um, but I I th- I think looking back, like, should I have you know done more, like. Trapper, my stepson worked the polls for three days straight Mm. at our polling station. Like I could have done that. I could, there are other things I could have done. Yeah, it was great. You know,
1: But you're doing this. I mean, you have a big platform and you're using it in in that way that is inclusive as well as influential. Right, I'm trying to be
0: inclusive and I'm trying to be mindful that there are all different kinds of people that listen to this. And there are plenty of Trump people that tune into the podcast. My interest is not in alienating them. I wanna bring them in. Um, I want to I want to be able to be truthful and honest I don't want to be editing myself or or operate from a fearful place that I might say something that that will you
1: know yeah
0: upset somebody because the minute I do that this whole thing is dead like it has to be a forum for open unbridled discussion
1: yeah and if you're posting kind of a photo of yourself with, that has only one interpretation. I think that gets in the way of, of a, a more influential uh, message.
0: Well, everybody yeah. has their own form of advocacy. And I think there are people, you know, there's something every, you know, like the people that go out and just push it hard with their political view. We need those people, whether sure. they're on the right or the left, like that's fantastic. You know, knock yourself out. It's just not, it's not, I don't think it's the it's the way that I operate. So I would prefer to do it, you know, the way that we're doing it right now.
1: Well, I think um, we talked about this over the phone this morning, but like the woke ultra progressive side, they're really good at flagging an issue that needs, that isn't getting the attention it deserves and needs to be dealt with. BLM is a great example of that, but uh, you know, very good at flagging the issue, but to solve an issue, you need more people than that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's where your influence comes, in handy like you're mm. you're hoping to solve problems not just identify problems
0: yeah and i think i think the you know the unbridled you know super hardcore you know progress whether it's progressive or or conservative that's what gets the issue on the table to decide in the yeah. first place you need that groundswell of support in order for it to be you know on the legislative docket to begin with yeah but then when you confront the process of actually trying to pass legislation or get things done, there does have to be uh, y- y- you know, the ability to work with others. And I think that Biden is somebody who understands that.
1: I agree. And then I think we should just, before we move on completely, uh, Kamala, we gotta talk about Kamala, the mm-hmm. first woman, the first black woman, the it's first South Asian woman. Uh, I mean, there's so many firsts with Kamala. Uh-huh. Uh, California's own you know, our senator that becomes the vice president. uh, What are your thoughts on that?
0: I mean, it's, what's not to love about that? It's unbelievable. You know, when that video of her, when she's calling Joe and saying we did it and she's in her like running gear, like, you know, it's fantastic. Um, And the impact of that, on young girls, young girls of color, particularly as a source of inspiration is, is really a beautiful thing. And the fact that she came out and did her speech in all white, you know, the uniform of the suffragettes, it's mm. like, it's a really cool symbolic thing. And I think she's going to be great. mm I My think. boys are excited because they kind of know Doug a little bit because they oh, really? know Doug's kids. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so they're like Doug, and Doug's
1: a Jew. I we got know, a Jew. Got know, a Jew yeah. close. That's so, the closest a Jew's been since Henry Kissinger, uh,
0: which, is, which is hilarious, <laughs> right? So Aviator Nation, it is. Yes,
1: um, I I I'm a fan. I I thought I liked her early on in the democratic process, and then you know somehow her campaign stumbled. Mm. Um, but she's uh, she's a great speaker. I think she's going to be able to prosecute uh, some cases for issues that are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, she can really be influential in the way she presents evidence, and she's a, a brilliant mind. And uh, I'm very excited to have her in there. Um, and uh, so that's pretty exciting. And and you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah. But you know, thank you all for for voting. And 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 and, and the one thing I'll say to your more conservative listeners is not trying to convince anyone how to vote, but I mean, I do, but not trying to convince you how to think, (laughs) how to think. But the one thing I would ask you to do next time an election comes up, and this is for everybody, is to consider the environment first, because you're listening to Rich Roll, you care about animal welfare, you care about uh, uh, plant-based eating, most likely, you care about these issues. The environment is critical. To me, it's the it's the issue that we can use to unite more the most people mm-hmm. and and pass some really important policies that can be good economically and environmentally and um and address climate and justice at the same time. And uh, we need more people. And so, if I conservative listeners, I would just ask you to really examine the policy, environmental policies of the people you're voting for at all times. Uh, and that should be number one, I think, for everybody. Who's voting? We should all be doing that. I know that's my number one issue, um, and I would encourage it. I think it's every should be everyone's number one issue because mm-hmm. of where we are at with climate change, because of where we are at um, with the clock ticking, and uh, I would I would really suggest to to people out there that are kind of in the middle to look at that.
0: Yeah, I w- I would second that. I mean, I would have preferred a candidate who. Uh, was more progressive on mm. climate issues than somebody like Joe Biden, somebody who's really on top of it, somebody who you know is very single-minded about how important that is. But here we are, and I was glad that when he gave up, when he got up and gave his speech, that he included climate change in his address. Yeah, and I think that's important and gives me hope.
1: Whoever it was, it wouldn't have been good enough for Greta. No,
0: <laughs> certainly not. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, All right, well, let's take a break and we'll come back on the environmental tip. We have a few things to share uh, and we're gonna do a little show and tells, uh, a couple wins of the week and take some listener questions. So stick around. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. And we're back. Let's kick it off with a little show and tell, shall we? I, I'm very excited for you. This is uh, it's a great day. I can't think of anything to show and tell right now. Oh, come on. <laughs> so today... Is November 9th, we're recording this on Monday. This will go up Thursday morning. Yep. Um, at that point, the book will be in the wild. It's called Voicing Change. I talked about it. We don't have to go on and on about it because we shared about it the other day, but- yep. um, Interview The book Anthology. is officially available uh, through our website, richroll.com slash VC to purchase. We're shipping globally, I'm very excited. We're actually a little ahead of the curve because we already have shipped out some of these books and I'm starting to see them pop up on social media. People seem to be enjoying it, really proud of it. Basically, it is inspiration and timeless wisdom lifted from the podcast. We feature 50 guests over the years with beautiful photographs and we've transcribed uh, some of the more impactful aspects of those conversations and distilled them down with essays and just, I'm really proud to be able to share what I think is a really fair and beautiful representation of what I strive to do here on the show, and I'm excited that it's now in the wild.
1: It's a beautiful book. It's on my coffee yeah. table. Thank you, fun.
0: Um, and you also had that great piece in Esquire. We referenced
1: it before, um, and you were. It's you're. I mean, that's a big deal. Like Esquire's, right? You it like Esquire. It was a big deal. I yeah. mean,
0: first of all, shout out to Jeff Gordonier, okay, who connected the dots there with the editor at Esquire. Um, Cause I reached out to him. I'm like, I got this book coming out. I should probably, you know, explore some press stuff. I don't have a publicist or anything like that. And he made some introductions and the editor at Esquire was like, yeah, we'd love to hear from Rich. And then I was like, oh shit, <laughs> I have to write something. And, uh, of course, I waited until the last minute the uh, the assistant editor was, like, sending me emails. Are you going to write this thing? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I create these deadlines so that I'm pulling my hair out thinking, what is it that I could possibly say? And intimidated because of the literary tradition of Esquire. Like I start thinking about yeah. Hunter S. Thompson and oh, yeah. like all these people that have written for that publication all over win, the maybe? years yeah. and uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, got it together though and shared that piece and and they ran it and- Like 4,000 words, right? It was a right? big, well, wh- here's what's funny. They said, I said, well, you know, what's the deadline and like how many words? And they were like, 800 words, 800 to 1,000. Right. So I write the thing, it's 2,000 okay. words and I thought, I'm not gonna edit it down, like I'll send it over. If they wanna cut it, I'll cut it down. But um, I thought that the version I sent them was, was the better version and it was digital. It wasn't going in the print magazine anyway. And they liked it. I mean, we did a round of edits and trimmed it up a little bit. But yeah, I mean, the that's editing, no okay. small thing for me. Like it's a big deal for yeah, me. Yeah, it's a big writer. deal. I mean, you, fa- you publish in the New York Times and in outside all the but time. never Esquire. I've never <laughs> written for a magazine before. So. Esquire's never had me. Yeah, yeah. Well. I'm, I might know someone over there. <laughs> you might know a guy.
1: But, uh, uh, but yeah, I was, thinking, I was gonna about, ask
0: you, can yeah. I add magazine editor to my bio now? Not editor, writer. <laughs> right, oh, that's yeah, what I meant, yeah, yeah, writer, yeah. magazine writer. Which
1: is better, you know, like, uh, yes, you can. And what's fun is uh, we had this discussion of the writing process, right? Mm-hmm. Like a, a quick back back and forth and just like how the low level torture right, that it is. right,
0: right, right. <laughs> it's so painful. I mean, the truth is, I set aside an entire day to mm. write that. I think I worked on it for like 10 hours straight and maybe got up twice to go to the bathroom or something. Yeah, because um, that's what it takes. And did you outline? When it? you're in the I, I kind of threw an outline together, mm-hmm. but you go through that phase of just wanting to pull your hair out and kill yourself because you can't make it good and you don't see the way through. Well, the and first you, draft's never really oh, good. It's, it's I mean, it's terrible. And no matter, good. yeah, but no yeah. matter how many times you tell yourself it doesn't matter, you yeah. know, that the first draft is terrible and that, you know, and no matter how many times you've seen it through to its conclusion and been proud of what you created, when you're in the weeds like that, it's it, it never gets easier.
1: No, we have a really nice process happening at my place where um, the first, It's the, when I'm doing the first draft, or put, start in a project. I'll write all day and for a couple of days, and whine. You know, periodically over the course of the day, how horrible it is. This is a bad one. This one's not going to be any good. And I say that over and over again. Yeah. And then my wife's like, "But you always say that." And then the next day is the time yeah, I'm you kind don't of rewriting understand it. This time, yeah. And then it's it, different. It, I go through it. Th- I go. I do three major passes, and by the third one, I'm like, "You know what? This one's pretty good." Right. <laughs> Because writing is rewriting. That's uh-huh. the process. You outline it. And April rolls her it. eyes. And April tolerates all these discussions. Um, but that's how it does feel though. It does mm-hmm. feel like this one sucks. And right. sometimes they're not as good. I mean, the the, the, the big thing for me is, you, know, you, you, you have this vision of what it's going to turn out to be before you start. Mm-hmm. And it very rarely hits that mark mm-hmm. and that's okay. That's the process, but like, that's that's the. Tr- I think that's where the torture lies. And this is how I envisioned it. This is what I want to say. And then getting there, especially when you're doing a work of journalism and you're trying to find the evidence to get you there, um, that's the work, and it, right. and it, it's hard to get there.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the torture. Yeah, I mean, with this thing though, is it was a little. It's a little bit di- like if you're doing a journalistic piece, you you kind of ha- know what the story is. Yeah. You're tr- you try to refrain from having a thesis, but you're out like sourcing yeah. all the, you know, information that you can to, you know, establish the facts of what is actually occurring. And then, you know, supporting that idea. With this, they're like, well, what do you wanna write about? Yeah, and it's like, oh, worse, yeah, I know, it's harder. Yeah, that <laughs> blank page, you know, is just the most terrifying, Tell uh, me about it. I'm, I'm, I'm at war with a
1: novel right now. It's right. not pretty.
0: <laughs> and you know, part of my thing going in was like, oh, I want to write something that will, you know, connect and unite people. Yeah. I want I want it to be well written so that I'm in service to, you know, that that the standards of something like Esquire that I aspire to be able to write, you know, at that level. I want it to get a bunch of traffic and then maybe they'll ask me to write something else. And as soon as I turned it in I'm like, do I wanna go through that again? Exactly, welcome to my life, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And you're rewarded with another assignment. Yes. And then you have to go through it
1: again. First of all, you achieved all those things, I'm sure. And second of all, yes, I've realized that a long time ago that I chose the one profession where you always have homework. Right, you know, there's always a homework assignment. That's the whole life. You, is a, exactly, is a, is a t- term this paper. This
0: podcast is similar in that regard. Yeah. There's always homework. There's always preparation. It's like I'm constantly doing homework. There's I mean, que- I love it, but it's still it's
1: work. There's a question down the line that we can when we one of the listener questions we can kind of tap into that. But our friend Rob Bell has a writing class. So for all, right. the reason I wanted to ask you about the writing process and to have this discussion with you is just for your listeners that are curious about about that process and um and if you are. Rob Bell, who's a friend of the show, Mm guest a couple of times, right?
0: Yeah, he's been on a couple of times. Amazing, amazing individual. And and one of the most gifted speakers and writers that I know. Like he has such a command over, not just the English language, but how to communicate effectively with people. And he does it in such a seemingly effortless way that it almost inspires rage (laughs) inside of me because his facility is so profound. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Well, like well, he's so good at you it. You know what? Why isn't I'm he like, running? How for,
1: do you do that? He should run for office. Can That'd we get a Rob Bell uh, for Senate?
2: He'd be great. <laughs> campaign,
1: um, um, but he's got a writing class coming up. It's it's going to be a Zoom session. I think they're two hour sessions. He's got like a list of dates on his uh, website. We mm-hmm. can link to that, right? Yeah,
0: we'll link it up in the show. Um, I think it's just robbell.com. I'm I'm it's I'm, it's up, I'm thinking I should probably I think attend should it, and then I'll report on it to you. One thing that I did do was take his, it's not a course. He's got an online, it's essentially an audio book. I Mm -hmm. think it's like eight hours long. And I believe it's called Something to Say. And it's basically him taking you through the entire process of how you put together an oral presentation, a talk essentially. And how he thinks about that and how he assembles his ideas to create a structure so that he can most effectively communicate what it is that he's trying to say. And I would say, you know, as somebody who writes a lot and also does a fair amount of public speaking, it was the most helpful and profound not it's not really a lecture, but series or seminar. Seminar, yeah, that's a good that's a good word on, on how to do this thing. And Mm -hmm. I can't recommend that enough. I don't know if it's still up on his website. I think it was a couple of years ago that I, that I listened to it, but, um, I found it to be unbelievably helpful. And I think just it's all on Zoom, right? So is he capping the number of people that can take it?
1: You know, I didn't ask him, I haven't called him or texted him telling him I'm gonna take it yet. I will do that. Um, uh, all I know it's two hours, it's 50 bucks. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's gonna be entertaining and informative I can guarantee that hundred percent and I, you know, the reason I'm interested in it is like I always, you know I, I was when I first started out the craft of writing um, I was trying to write screenplays at the same time as I was uh, breaking into writing stories for magazines mm-hmm. and um, and I, I read a lot about the screenwriting process but I didn't really in the journalism process and I've never really do I'm not I'm not one of those guys that dives into the craft really I don't uh, but but now I guess I'm at the stage in my career that I am am interested in that. And uh, I follow a guy, Chip Scanlon has a newsletter uh, or an email newsletter that he sends out. Uh, I can't recommend that highly enough. He talks to really accomplished journalists and he's a writing instructor and teacher and was a journalist for a while. and um, And that's really helpful. Um, and then I'm, I'm interested in writing classes. I wanna learn more about yeah. storytelling now that I'm kind of like mid-career. I don't know why, but it's, I'm just like attracted to the philosophy of it more than I was
0: kind of coming up. Mm. Yeah. We'll take the class and then come back and report back. You got it. Is he doing mm. it alone? Is, or is, it, is this one of the things that he's doing with Elizabeth Gilbert? It seems like it's not, it's just it's not Liz. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Cause I know that they did a little bit of a tour together. Yeah. And it was all about like how to, you know, kind of... Cultivate your creative They've voice. done a lot of
1: creativity workshops yeah. together. Yeah, like yeah. They'll, they'll do will And we like, went to their yeah.
0: live show. We did. Remember that at Largo? Yeah. yeah, yeah, fabulous.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out, Rob. What's up, dude? Shout out, Rob. Shout out, Liz.
0: Um, while we're on the subject of show and tell, I think you got something else you wanna show us, right? Oh,
1: yeah. So um, my Instagram, Wanted me to try Baruchas, so congratulations, <laughs> congratulations! Oh, you you to got Darren delivered Alain. the
0: ad, the ad of Darren <laughs> explaining to you. Congratulations,
1: the benefits Darren. of Baruchas. The algorithm is is has made me <laughs> buy these.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that kid from those three twins from the social dilemma yes. that are standing behind your avatar, yes, uh, and deciding what to deliver to you, They're, we're like. Well, this guy's co-hosting the Rich Roll Podcast. I yeah. think he would I think he'd really jump but on the But then the other guy's thing. like, yeah, but he's not nearly as healthy or or
1: like he's not but quite. That's all there. the more reason why maybe he needs it. Yeah, he needs Barucas. <laughs> We're helping him, and he needs to be helped. <laughs> Cha-ching. So there you go. So I saw You got this the trail thing. mix. I I loved the post. It was promoted, true, but I did mm-hmm. click on it. Um and And, you know, I love the idea of this kind of wild. It looks like a Brazil nut kind of, um, but tell me,
0: tell me. Have you never
1: tried these? (laughs) I've never heard of them or tried it before. Oh, wow. Well,
0: crack it open. I mean, first of all, this is the trail mix, which people that know the show and listen to my podcast with Darren, apologies, because we talked about this at length when he was on, but there's the nut, which is in there. But then there's also, the Baruca is like this nut that comes inside a very hard shell. It's like the size of a tangerine. And you need this like heavy duty machinery to crack it open. But the shell, it, when, when you kind of take like pieces of the shell, you can actually eat it. And it's pretty delicious and super nutritious as well. It's good. So it's pretty good, right? It's like this unbelievable trail mix. Tastes like a peanutty thing. And the, the nuts are smaller than a Brazil nut. They taste yeah. more like a peanut mm-hmm. than a Brazil nut, but they have a pretty rich flavor. And this is the shell? Um, exactly. Yeah, it's like, that's a flake, flaked off piece of the shell itself.
1: But Where it's did he good, find right? this?
0: Through his superfood hunting in the Brazilian cerrado, uh, Sahadu, I think is how mm. you say it. Um, and he connected with these indigenous farmers there who've been growing these nuts forever and created a coalition of them to supply uh, this product to markets across America and I think it's great. it's a great product and they're really they're healthy. I eat them all the time. I love them. High in antioxidants. Lots of micronutrients. Really? Yeah. What's your verdict? As a as a first-time imbiber. Sweet?
1: Nutty, crunchy? Definitely more peanutty.
0: Yeah. Mhm. It's like very a better sweet. it's the like a better tasting peanut. Oh yeah. And that could almost be like a granola. Like you could put almond milk over that and eat it. Almost have it like for a, breakfast? Like a breakfast. Or yeah. just put
1: it in some um, vegan yogurt, right. cocoa As yo. It, yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. Um, I love it. I mean, I'm always looking for kind of snacks like that for the trail or for whatever. Uh-huh. And that's beautiful.
0: There you go. Yeah,
1: Darren, thank you. And thank right you, um, Instagram algorithm and Zuckerberg. <laughs> exactly.
0: I think I might have like a vanity URL Baruchas.com slash Rich Roll or something like that. Oh, really? I don't know, but uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. I've and that, that, was, you, that happened because you were delivered an ad on Instagram.
1: That happened because I was <laughs> delivered an ad on Instagram and said, yeah. be one of the first people to try this. And which is like, I'm like, I like to be one of the right. first to try something. Right. I and, found
0: myself vulnerable to Instagram advertising. I yeah. bought a couple things. Yes. Based on ads that were delivered to me. But then what I found is that when you buy the thing, like I bought a sweater.
1: The other day. You bought a sweater on Instagram. Bird,
0: Birdwell Britches sweater. Uh, like a card, like a, <laughs> what are those called where they button down the front? Cardigan. Yeah, cardigan. You don't need a cardigan. I liked it though. <laughs> and I bought it. And then suddenly I got flooded with cardigan ads. And I was like, but I already bought the cardigan. That's where I know AI just isn't where, you know, no, I'm not worried work. about AI yet because no. it should know that I've, sat, I've scratched that itch by now. But,
1: um, what time of day? I wonder. Are we are we most are we most vulnerable to Instagram ads <laughs> where we actually make the purchase? I don't know,
0: but I'm sure the algorithm <laughs> knows that. Right at this point, it's anyway, logging. It's logging. Anyway, those Darren, purchases
1: are made. I have not met you, but I think that you should know that your investment in the Instagram ads that you bu- that your company bought may, may be paying off. Yeah, I'm
0: surprised. I you can't guys, be the I'm only surprised one. Surprised you guys haven't met actually. No, with all the time you spend. Got to bring them out to the reef point. Doom. Um, we'll make that happen. Yeah. All right, so what else do we got here? Let's do win, wins of the week. Wins of the week. We got two. One's yeah. obvious, and we already talked about it.
1: Well, uh, yeah, but I wanna I wanna promote my um, 2020 Triple Crown. Like, right. I had one other thing. Where's my?
0: Talking about the Lakers.
1: Lakers. Dodgers. Right. If I can find my mask, I have a Dodgers mask. If I can find it, I might have I might have put it aside. Now it's got right here. And. Joe Biden. So that's what we were talking about. So my son was born and I thought, what's a better way for Zuma to enter the world than to have the 2020 triple crown, Lakers, Dodgers, and old Joe.
0: (laughs) Old Joe. All right. That's your (laughs) win of the week. That's
1: my win of the week.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Uh, My win of the week should be obvious. Yeah. It's uh, Chris Nickick the breath of fresh air we all need right now. Yeah, great story. So Chris, uh, for those that don't know, became the first athlete with Down syndrome to complete an Ironman this past weekend. He completed Ironman Florida in Panama City on on, on Saturday. And it's just so inspirational, this 21-year-old kid who earned a Guinness world record for finishing this race, which is really historic. Um, he did it 14 minutes prior to the cutoff time, so mm-hmm. it was a nail biter all Amazing. the way down to the end. No previous person with Down syndrome has ever even attempted an Ironman, so that puts him heads and shoulders above you know anybody else in his category. And this is a kid who survived two heart surgeries, mm-hmm. has been in seven schools, has all has had all these. Ear canal reconstructions, like it's been a road to get him to the to this place. Even walking was um, a, like he learned right. to walk late, yeah, right? Yeah, Using yeah. a walker and all. Yeah, exactly. And what's beautiful about it is that it's all founded in this idea of being one percent better every single day. Mm. And I think it was his dad or somebody said, you know, like just try to be one percent better every single day. And he kind of cottoned onto that mantra, and that's become like his sort of. Thing now he had a T-shirt you know his kit says one yep. percent better and all that Website kind of stuff too. and you know in a moment of you know despite what's going on with the election like harkening back to what we were talking about earlier like this divided culture that we're in like this is this is like the symbol of inclusion and leadership and normalcy that that we can all get behind so congrats to Chris it's so inspirational. And it would be great to get him on the podcast. I'm gonna see if I can make that happen.
1: Congratulations, Chris. Yeah, what an right incredible on. accomplishment, man. I mean, what a beast going Unbelievable. A full Iron Man, And I know. To, you know, uh, I mean, sometimes I think the his, people his, that that are out there the longest actually are the are the biggest champions. Of I course, mean, to, to keep it's fighting, so much harder. It's harder. There's you know? more pain that you fought through, and, and the elite uh,
0: guys out there eight hours, and he's yeah. out there twice as long.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, it's it, incredible accomplishment. So, congratulations to yeah. Chris and his entire family. It's uh, that's a tearjerker. That one, mm, very much so. Yeah.
0: Um, all right, a uh, few teachable moments before we pivot into listener questions. Sure, a couple quickies.
1: Uh, I'm not gonna belabor them too much. Uh, Center for Food Safety sent out a press release that a federal court declared genetically engineered salmon to be unlawful. So mm-hmm. the story dates back to a 2016 lawsuit where the FDA had approved a genetically modified uh, salmon to be grown in aquaculture farms, uh, I believe off the East Coast, uh, I have to check that. But um, basically it was an engineered to grow twice as fast as the typical Atlantic salmon. It w- It included DNA from the Atlantic salmon, the Pacific King salmon and Arctic ocean eel pout, whatever the hell that is. Right. And so they created this thing to grow f- faster, obviously to make more money. Um, and the FDA approved it, even though there was real concern about could it leak out. You know that's what happens with aquaculture. Sometimes you know um, fish do get out. Right. When the you're idea trying to is that it. this
0: will be restricted to these farmed fisheries, right? right? And there's no connection between those and the you know our natural waterways.
1: Right. But but I don't know where this these farm fisheries were if they were land based or not. That was the idea. If it was land based, that's different. But even then. You can't guarantee that a fish Mm -hmm. will never wind up. And if it's in a river, that's where salmon goes. Nature always
0: finds a way. Nature
1: always finds a way. So it's like the Frankenstein fish was, uh, the lawsuit finally was ruled in favor of Earth Justice and Center for Food Safety. I mean, I personally um, am in favor of open water aquaculture because the way I see it is it is a way to um, reduce the pressure on natural, uh, tuna populations and, and, and salmon populations. The two most plated fin fish in the world are tuna and salmon. And if we can avoid, uh, going in and and harvesting those populations, you have a better opportunity for their predators to eat, especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to salmon, we're talking about orca, um, in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere. And, um, so I'm in favor of open water aquaculture. I think it's a it's it's one of Paul Hawkins' solutions. It's mm-hmm. a drawdown solution for climate change. I'm I am in favor of it, especially when it's paired with, um, uh, you know, kelp growing and 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 oysters right. and that kind of stuff. I mean, there there but is. How
0: do you define aquaculture?
1: A fish farm, mm-hmm. any any sort of uh, water based farm, but open water aquaculture. It's different than how they, so the, a lot of the bad salmon farms that have caused real problems are so close to shore that they end up polluting the entire uh, right. coastline. And and especially in Chile, is, is, is a bad example, there are some bad examples there. Um, Scotland too. But in uh, the way they're trying to do them now with making sure there's current that's coming through so the nutrients don't, so you don't just have a bunch of fish poop everywhere, basically. Uh-huh. You don't overcrowd the pens. You you can do things that are more humane. You can do things that are more natural and that don't uh, negatively affect the ecosystem. So there are examples of that in Hawaii, um, um, Kampachi farms in Hawaii, Kampachi farms in Baja. It could be a solution uh, as we get, more and more people on planet earth and, and it could be a food solution that is pot, that is positive going forward. I've written about it before. It's mm-hmm. in that pokey story that we talked about before. Um, but when it comes to genetically modified food, I'm not hundred percent against it. There was the Hawaiian papaya was saved with a genetically modified papaya that saved the entire industry, um, back in the day, but that came out of uh, the University of Hawaii was not driven by a business model. It was driven by scientists trying to save individual farmers, family farmers on on the big island.
0: Were the genetic modifications made it to render it more pestilent resistant?
1: More uh, resistant to a specific uh, infestation, a specific uh-huh. pest that was just decimating papaya trees on the big island. Right. And so- uh, by, but,
0: by by creating a hybrid with like mouse eyeballs or something I, like that. I don't that. think like mouse eyeballs they, you know, were involved,
1: like, but like I understand why people hate yeah. that stuff, but I'm not like, I'm not an all or nothing guy with any solution. But when it comes to creating an animal, <laughs> mm-hmm. I am hell bent against- fucking yeah. with DNA there's, to create an there's animal. There's such
0: a hubris built into that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. in this particular case, it had to do... I mean, they, they, the 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 district court for the Northern District of California ruled that the FDA violated core environmental laws in approving this as a violation of the Endangered Species mm-hmm. Act. And my understanding is that it tracks back to their inability to establish that it wouldn't cause harm, right. right? And they're just kind of, the FDA was saying, there's no indication that it's going to cause harm, but that that's very different from... Establishing that it won't. Right. right? There's a human hubris, and, and that hubris is just it. like yeah. it's not a problem. Like we'll just like we'll deal. <laughs> it's, I mean, if history tells us anything, <laughs> that it's that these things go sideways in a way that you couldn't predict.
1: Yes, you you should always beware the uh, unintentional consequences of good intentions. Right. Like like that that's 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 always the deal. Um, the second one, a rewilding. Um uh proposition passed in Colorado prop 114 to reintroduce wolves to the Rocky Mountains in Colorado mm-hmm. it's very exciting um for those who don't know wolves were basically all but extinct based on settlers moving to the west in 1920 i think there was like between 1915 and 1920 there was a real effort to try to kill wolves mm-hmm. um, because they were endang- they would endanger the livestock um and kill the livestock and and um, so there were no wolves really in the West for a long time. Yellowstone Park started reintroducing them in the Clinton administration. And it's been such a success. Um, it's, it's created healthier elk herds. It's changed the course of rivers. It's, it's been a hundred, and the wolves have really taken, they found wolves, I think up in Canada, in the Arctic regions of Canada, and they brought mm-hmm. them down and they, they did a very real careful job on, re, I mean, top shelf rewilding project. There's a book called American Wolf, which is absolutely fantastic, that really handicaps that and it mm. follows some amazing charismatic wolves I hi- and, and some great scientists. Highly recommend that book. Um, anyway, uh, that's been a success. There's pressure now to take the wolves, the American wolf, off the gray wolf, off the Endangered Species Act because some ranchers still don't like wolves there because they will right. come at livestock. But if they do take down livestock, that rancher is compensated. Hmm. But they still wanna kill the wolf afterwards. It, 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 there's, a, there's a thing about the wolf.
0: <laughs> the revenge. The impulse, revenge,
1: or... <laughs> the revenge impulse. But <laughs> yeah. uh, Colorado doesn't have wolves. Idaho has them now, Montana has them, and um, Wyoming has them. And So what is lo- the
0: logistical process of introducing these to Colorado look like?
1: It's a good question. I think they'll probably, uh, what happened in Wyoming is they, they took a population that was wild and they, um, mm. Reintroduced them and had them in a certain area, and eventually they denned up, and they had litters, and they were monitored, and they were chipped, and they could be tracked. Right, and um, I would imagine the same thing is going to happen. The reason there's six thousand wolves now started in in Wyoming, and they're in Montana, and they're in they're in Idaho, they're in U- some are in Utah. That's all, a lot of that is because, not all, but a lot of that is because of those, the, the success of the Yellowstone project, mm-hmm. because, you know, wolves have their territories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Colorado is gonna have them. And and the point is, is that having an apex predator in the vicinity is good for the ecosystem. It's scientifically mm-hmm. proven, it's scientifically sound. Um, and and I think that's the, the goal here is to reintroduce
0: the apex predator. Right, that's cool. It's cool. It's really cool. Have you been to, Wolf connection out here? No. Do you know about this place? No. It's a wolf sanctuary. It's maybe hour and a half, two hours outside of town. Mm. Like kind of on the way to Vegas. Okay. I can't remember exactly where it was where it is. Um, but it's this organization. It's mainly this one dude. I can't remember his name, but he's got all these wolves and he takes care of them and he takes them in when they, I don't know what the process for that is. And he's got this like kind of educational arm where they do tours. And Mathis, our daughter, many years ago, she was like obsessed with wolves and we did her birthday party there and we took all these kids there and spent this entire day with the wolves and it was unbelievable.
1: Is it like- a recovery. Project I know Rogan, for, for,
0: Rogan's like a fan. He's been out there a couple times. He's posted about. it. Is it like
1: it. a rescue for people that had wolves and couldn't handle yeah, them? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Some of it is that. Yeah, some of it is that. Oh, that's cool. Um, but it's it's kind of magnificent. And if you enjoyed that book, which I haven't read yet, you I'm gotta gonna check it. out. Yeah. Um, if that spoke to you, you would. I'm, you would I'm sure enjoy checking that out as somebody who just did an animal tracking workshop. What? I did. (laughs) What is that? You come in today and you're like, I did this thing. I was like, don't tell me anything more. Just wait until the (laughs) podcast because I need to hear about this. So Saturday morning, I left Santa
1: Monica at a quarter to six in the morning and drove um, to the Kuyama Valley which is in this Los Podres behind Ojai in the mountain valley there. I came through from mm-hmm. the five. So I, I actually drove through 30 mile blowing snowstorm, Wow. Because um, we got some weather here. And by the time I got there, Biden had been declared. <laughs> it was like very metaphorical. Right. But the reason I was out there was to, um, to take this workshop. It actually is an evaluation too. And so these experts in animal tracking, that is a tradi- this specific tradition of animal tracking, which I had no idea until I showed up there um it, it connects to the Bushmen in South Africa Botswana area, and it's their kind of it's 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 their oral tradition put on paper mm. by a South African naturalist that had done that years and years ago, and now it's worldwide, and there's these su- subculture of people that go out and hang out and have what they call dirt time, where they look at tracks, circle them, and try to decide what animal it is, what foot it is, like what where they were going, what the gate was, and try to really analyze what's happening. And this one area in Ventura County, there's a, a perennial stream that runs through in a valley and it's incredible place for uh, tracks. And we saw mountain lion, bear, tr- black bear track, a lot of bobcat, um, great horn wow. owl, red tail hawk, uh, you know, Cottontail, Jackrabbit—I mean, you like sixteen mammal species, eighteen bird species, something like that—all in this one area. And I did it for a project I'm working on um, uh, that includes tracking, <gasps> which i would never done before. But you know, for me, a lot of my recreation is—is is if it's not running, it's swimming, and often it's swimming and diving. And mm-hmm. I love. Looking at animals underwater. And so this was an opportunity to kind of do that on land. And wow. you know, big fan of of doing that. It was it was cool. It was it was uh it was a lot of fun. I turned my ankle at one stage and fell in the river, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> I'm on the DL for about let's a week talk or two. About only that. <laughs> um I was so mad. I'm But like, you damn it, I was just getting back in shape.
0: The motivation is in part because it's 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 related to an article that you're writing or something that you're researching right it's, now. It's
1: it's related to the novel I've been working oh, on. And okay. So I have already written a draft Got of it. it. I'm in the second draft now. But I never there's character there's a character in it that is a tracker. Uh huh. And um and like now I'm I'm in I'm trying to meet you know beef up some of the the right. finer points now. Right. The the big dr- did like April bold go lines. with you? No, because, you know, we had the kid, we have yeah, Zuma. Like, how did so no, she stayed work? home she would have loved it. I mean, it was cold. It was like, yeah. it was like rainy and sleety and 39 degrees the whole day. Um, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it. What was scary about it was I get there, I think I'm going to a workshop that becomes an evaluation for people who want a certificate. And it turns out like, it's really, the whole thing is a test. The way they mm-hmm. do the teaching is, um they they line up say a half a dozen of these tracks they find them and they circle them and they ask you a bunch of questions then you write down your answers in your notebook and then they go back through and explain what it is and why it's why you you know what to look for mm-hmm. so for someone like me who literally didn't study at all and has no idea what they're doing it was like <laughs> right away <laughs> I'm like, like what is this
0: have I don't know idea. <laughs>
1: Is that a big foot? It was, it was a human foot. I got <laughs> yeah. that one right. I got like 50% right.
0: Uh-huh. What was the most uh, unusual thing that you learned? Um, cat, felines, their front paws
1: are more compact. Their back paws are more elongated. And if you take your thumb out of the equation, a feline track um, will be asymmetrical. So the second uh, pad, will be kind of up. It'll be just like our hands. Mm-hmm. So if you take your thumb out of the equation, that's how a feline's pads will be. Mm. Whereas dogs won't have that asymmetry. Mm. Um, and and, and the that's fe- how
0: you distinguish feline from canine? From canine.
1: And canines, you'll, you might have a little bit of claw. You can see a little of claw, and it's very rare you'll see that with feline.
0: Because uh-huh. the, they retract the, their claws. They retract
1: their claws. And then birds, um, you know, uh, there's like a k i think the talon for for an owl is kind of more k-shaped it's not the classic bird right. foot um so not all birds have that kind of classic foot mm. and so learning that was interesting yeah wow. i already knew what rabbit poop looked like so that wasn't new
0: amazing man very yeah. cool that was fun um all right so we are on to listener questions Listener are questions. do let's, let's do it, do it. where
1: are we going first oh frank I see you, Frank. Frank from SoCal. All right.
2: Howdy, Rich. Howdy, Adam. Hope you guys are doing well. I'm Frank, and I'm calling from Southern California. Uh, my question is for both of you. Well, first of all, before I get into that, congratulations, by the way. I think what you guys are doing is such a benefit, and I'm so thankful that I have this as a resource. I think it's incredibly valuable to most people to have um, this kind of guidance available to them and podcasts in general has just been a great resource for me. Um, my question is, I find myself struggling sometimes. I have a thirst and a desire for self-improvement. It leads me down a lot of different rabbit holes. Many of them result in a beneficial change and it's tangible in my life and I I value that. But sometimes I find that the noise it creates distracts me almost to the point where it's a detriment that I feel like I get easily caught up in some of the tribal battles that are going on in the environment that I'm exploring. And and I almost have to distance myself from it so that I don't get caught up in in the fray. And one of the things that I've done as a result of that is I've deleted some of my social media accounts uh, Instagram and Facebook in particular, so that I am not distracted throughout the day with these thoughts that tend to kind of take me off my path and lead me someplace that isn't that healthy for me. So my question is, Rich, as someone who's dealing with this on a daily basis, do you have any techniques um, that you utilize to kind of keep you focused on your journey or your exploration or whatever it is that you're, you're trying to achieve without getting caught up in the side play and the battles, especially, you know, given the election, you know, we're all being inundated with ads and all of this negativity. And I really want to protect myself from that. And I'd really appreciate hearing your thoughts on that.
0: Mm. Um, Thank you, Frank. Not only is that a great question, I think it's something that we're all grappling with. Um, I feel like you answered your own question in part, like you've already enacted some roadblocks between you and whatever it is that's triggering you. And I think that's a great start. Um, from my own perspective, you know, I try to pay attention to when I stumble across something and I have an emotional reaction to it. Like that's usually a pretty good indication that um, that's going to uh, lead to me losing a little self-control over how I'm digesting information. And my overall rule, and I wrote about this in that Esquire piece, is is to try to control the controllables, um, let go of things that you don't have control over and understanding that not every issue needs to be your issue just because it is an issue and it is out there. And as much as I applaud your curiosity and your quest for knowledge and understanding that's leading you down these rabbit holes, it's important to self-regulate around that and to erect healthy boundaries. And that requires a little bit of self-inquiry to understand when it is that it becomes unhealthy because part of it, of course, like, intellectual investigation is part of what's being human and mm-hmm. i think there's something you know laudable about that of course but once it tips into you getting triggered in a certain way and whether that means you're engaging with social media you know uh, and getting involved in arguments i don't know you were a little vague about that obviously that's you know uh, going to throw you off kilter Um, And if you find yourself powerless to erect those healthy boundaries, say like, oh, these are the hours that I use my phone and these are the ones that I don't, I've removed these apps from my phone, I've grayscaled it, or all these other kind of prophylactic things that we can do to try to protect ourselves a little bit, um, that, uh, you know, short of that, like, you've gotta just put it aside. And there are certain people that go to great lengths because they feel so powerless around this. Like, mm. I know people that have lock boxes in their houses that have timers on them, and they can put their phone or their iPad or their computer in there and put a timer on it, and you're just unable to access it for really a set period of time. Mm. Like, I know people that do that. There's also um, all kinds of apps out there that will limit your screen time mm-hmm. and like lock your phone down for set periods of time. And that way it makes it impossible for you to be your own worst enemy. I, I like one, that. There's one called Focus Lock. I'm gonna try that. Um, and basically it, it, it will you know hide all your downloaded apps for a certain set period of time. And then when that, time lapses, they appear like magic, you know, I think there's a variety of apps out there like that. So those would be, you know, kind of the last ditch efforts when you just feel like things are totally out of control. Uh, but I think from an internal point of view, it's about, you know, kind of calibrating yourself um, so that you don't need to use those things, right? Like, so if you're paying attention, if you're if you're interconnected enough, you can feel when it doesn't feel right. and. You have to have the wherewithal to say this is not in service to me, um, and to put it aside. Uh, a, a book that I would recommend that you read is Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. He was a he was a guest on the podcast. We went into this subject at length, um, and basically, the thesis of which is we have to take control over our digital lives because. When we're not, and most people aren't, they are controlling us, mm-hmm. and it's becoming increasingly more and more difficult to erect that distance between ourselves and that device that is so all powerful. If you watch the movie Social Dilemma, you understand this very well. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not necessarily our fault. Like these things are designed to activate that addictive dopamine response and render us powerless from an addiction perspective. So it's not about self-flagellation or beating yourself up because you find yourself mired in these battles that you don't wanna be in, but it is incumbent upon you to take responsibility and to be in control of them rather than allowing them to control you. So that's the most that I could say in the most general terms about how to do this. Um, I think because you know, this is this peak election moment, we feel like we all have to be so deeply engaged in every nuance of the news cycle. Um, And to step away is to experience FOMO, like, oh my God, the world's happening and I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, But in truth, these things are gonna play out whether you're engaged with them or not. And to understand how little control you have over them, to exert the control that you can, of course, do that. But to separate yourself from the results of that, and um, making sure that you're taking care of yourself because you can't be the advocate or the servant or the seeker that you aspire to be if you're a victim of you know this kind of scrolling culture that we're in,
1: yeah. And we all are victims of it to a certain yeah. degree, but and whether I, in- I
0: relate to this deeply, like yeah. this is a war that I wage with myself every single day.
1: Yeah, but how do you engage? Engaging in the battles is a different thing, and and I seldom engage in. Those I never battles. do that. Yeah, because because um, I keep it real simple. From my perspective, it's like I might scroll and check it out but I don't let it dictate my action.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so it, it doesn't become that distraction for me really. Mm-hmm. Um, just try to keep it as simple and keep it local and keep the focus there because ultimately whoever wins any election, it's not going to be the reason your life is the way your life is.
0: I've just found over time that getting involved in digital squabbles, not only completely Throws me off my kilter. Yeah, um, it's just it's not productive. Right. You know, it rarely results in some meeting of the minds between two people. Exactly. But Never it does works. require discipline. Like I'll come across a comment or somebody saying something about me that's just so utterly false mm-hmm. and rife with, you know, uh, misinformation about me, and it, it takes everything in my power to just not engage with that person. Mm-hmm. But I've learned over time that. Not only does that like really just ramp up my, you know, my I become, I just get into this very heightened emotional state, and I become very reactive. And that person is just seeking attention. Like yeah. I'm basically playing into their their goal, which is to get me to engage yeah. and to get me to, you know, get all activated over something. And ultimately, there's no winner in any of that, and you end up being the one who suffers the most.
1: You're the depleted one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Great question and thanks for the positive vibes, Frank. All right, next one. I feel like this one is uh, one you can relate to mm-hmm. as well, Rich.
3: Hey Rich, hey Adam. Thank you both so much for all the work you do. My name is Dazen, I'm 24 years old and I'm from South Florida. Over the last two years, I've felt this passion growing inside of me for conservation and environmental protection and I really enjoy photography and being out in nature. Problem is I'm a third year law student Was on the brink of starting his lifelong career. And the truth is, I'm not sure that practicing law is what I want to do. Every day I go into the office and I feel like my creative spirit is being crushed. I feel as though I'm at an inflection point in my life and then I need to decide where exactly I want to go in my career. I've been working so hard for this degree for seven years now, but also I'm pretty sure that I want to pursue something that embraces my, my passions and my creative spirit. So my question is, how do you rationalize to yourself that taking that first step into the unknown is what is truly good for you? That despite leaving what you worked so hard for all your life, everything is gonna be okay. Thank you guys so much for listening and answering questions. I really appreciate you guys.
0: All right, awesome. Is it Gavin or Davin?
1: I've listened to it a few times and I keep thinking it's Davin.
0: All right, what's up, Davin? If it's Gavin, I apologize, apologize. I'll say what's up, Gavin. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Thank you for your question. I feel uh highly qualified to answer this one. <laughs> this one's right up your alley. As a former lawyer myself, I've often thought over the years that I should put together a lecture series and take it across America to visit all the law schools and deliver a keynote on the realities of what it actually what's actually entailed in being a lawyer and the difference between your experience in law school versus what it's like when you're in the practicing world. Um, I wish that I had seen a lecture like that when I was in law school. I might've saved myself a decade, mm-hmm. um, but we're neither here nor there with that. The first thing I would say is, um, you know, I'm compassionate to your dilemma because I have lived in that very place. Um, the good news is you're only 24 years old. You've got your entire life ahead of you um, and you have the opportunity to, to be patient with all of this. I think that at this point, you're in your third year of law school You should see your way through law school. I don't think you should drop out of law school. Like, you're almost done at this point. You should finish your law degree because you're so close. And you don't have to practice if you don't want to practice. You know, even though uh, I, I found the practice of law, you know, not to my liking and I felt ill suited to it, I don't regret going to law school. Like, law school taught me a lot. It taught me a manner of thinking, a way of thinking, it taught me how to write clearly and argue a point. And um, there's a lot to be said for that, and I think that my law degree comes into play today as a podcaster and as a writer and somebody who writes books and is trying to you know articulate ideas for the world. Like I, I credit my law school training and experience as a benefit to all of that, even though, you know I spent a lot of years chasing a career that ultimately was not in service to you know who I wanted to be in the world. Mm. Um, so I think you can begin. First and foremost, by perhaps expanding the idea of what a law degree can do for you and what it can be, it doesn't mean that you have to just go work in a law firm. You know, perhaps your creativity could be sated by pursuing, uh, a, you know, a legal career in conservation advocacy or in environmental protection or in environmental law. God knows, you know, we need some passionate young good lawyers who are well versed in how to best protect our environment. And maybe you could find, you know, I'm sure you've probably already thought about this, but a way of merging that passion with your training could be something to consider. And, you know, that aside, if that's not doing it for you and you really do wanna, um, you know, seek out something that's more personally satisfying outside of the law altogether, I think it's okay to, it sounds like you're already employed because you're saying you're going into the office. So maybe you're working while you're in law school to um, To learn as much as you can in the situation where you are right now. And I've said this before on the podcast, but to, to live as leanly as possible. Like, I don't know if you've incurred any debt for law school, if you haven't, good for you. If you have, try to pay that debt off as soon as possible. Um, because the leaner that you can live, the more uh, opportunities You can make yourself available for. Like, you don't want to get caught up in a situation where you're in service to, uh, you know, a certain kind of lifestyle that is befitting, like, a young lawyer Mm. because you're trying to keep up with the Joneses. So you're leasing a certain car or living in a, you know, posh apartment, all those kinds of things. Um, To the extent that you can cut all of that out. And, uh, put yourself in a position where at any moment you could just pull the trigger and get out, like that's the best advice that I could give you. And then again, being patient with yourself. Like you don't, it's okay that you can't see your way through this right now. So I would go easy on yourself and you know relinquish that pressure that you're shouldering that you have to have it all figured out right now. You're 24. I didn't figure things out until I was 40. Now, Lord knows that took too long, but- you know, I think it's okay to be in this, you know, questioning inquisitive phase that you're in right now and just continue to ask yourself those questions. And when you feel an impulse that's pulling you in a certain direction to say yes to that and to investigate that and and indulge that, like, you know, I think, you know, to the extent that you're pulled towards the environment or photography or whatever it is, like, even though, you're in law school and perhaps you're practicing on some level like carve out the time to continue to you know fertilize that that kernel that that interest because you never know where those things are going to lead you so whether it's a side hustle or a hobby or just something that you've got on the back burner stay in contact with that because you never know where those things are are going to lead and to keep your options open right to pay attention to what the world is throwing in your direction so that you can be open and flexible and able to say yes to certain things when they come in your direction.
1: Really well said. Um, The earth definitely needs a good lawyer. I will say that. And there's interesting philosophy that's kind of happening in law, in international law, where ecosystems have a right to exist. There's like this new kind of uh, area of the law that's being explored. and so that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, you can't just log a forest without the forest approval kind of idea. And it's very out there and abstract, but it's what? actually taking root. Like a natural resource has its own right to live, its own right to, right to survive. And there are lawyers working on that kind of interesting, intricate legal like philosophy. Like in the way
0: that a corporation is given personhood, yes. that a forest could be given yes. personhood? yeah, it, it, to combat that. That's super interesting. Interesting. So there's like there's
1: like a trip. There's some stuff in there, and you know the Natural Resources Defense Council is a wonderful organization, and what they do is litigate cases uh, in favor of, uh, of of Earth and defending the environment. <laughs> Earth Justice is another one. There's places that need lawyers, um, but that doesn't mean you have to be a lawyer. And uh, the only thing I'd add is, is just re- reiterate what Rich has already said. I mean, I think of the Annie DeFranco song. Where she where she said, generally my generation wouldn't be caught dead working for the man, and generally I agree with them. Trouble is, you got to have an alternate plan. And uh, (laughs) you know, when I first decided to become a writer, I didn't make a living as a journalist or as a screenwriter or any of that. First, I was writing grants to make Mm -hmm. a living. Um, So you have to have that plan. You have to figure out what you're going to get into and how you're going to pay those bills and keep the lights on. Um, But that even if you have to do that, and maybe law that's you can never regret the steps you took because they're gonna, you're gonna use that training at some yeah. point. And there's something that you are gonna be able to use from law school, from this training, from this last seven years of working so hard that's gonna help you keep the lights on until you figure out where you're going next. Yeah. Um, but it sounds to me like you've already made your decision. Um, to me, it sounds that way. And you just are looking for the permission. And I give you the permission to, like we both do, to take a step into, into the direction of your dreams, do it, you won't regret it, and and but it won't be it won't be easy necessarily, right? It, it, you know, I had a whole eviction notice phase. <laughs> you know, like it's not always easy, and and sometimes you're gonna feel like you made the wrong decision uh, if if it goes the way mine went. I mean, I certainly I felt that way at times. Um, but so you just know that going in.
0: Yeah, I, I I don't think that there will be regret at taking that leap into the unknown. No, but I think there perhaps will be regret if you don't. And if there's anything that I can tell a young 24 year old as somebody who's now 54, uh, now's the time. Do it. Like when you're 24, you have so little responsibility in the world compared to what it's gonna look like later. So if there's ever a time where you're liberated enough to take risks, 24 is the time to do it. Yeah and seize that opportunity. And like Adam said, that doesn't mean that it's gonna all unfold in front of you and that it's gonna be easy. It may be the hardest thing that you ever do and you're gonna have to pivot 20 more times. But it does sound like you've already decided this is what you wanna do and you're using the the word, how do you rationalize it? I wouldn't, I think that's the wrong word. I think justify or um, permit might be mm. a better word to use. Yeah. Um, so I give you permission to do it.
1: Do it, man. Yeah. And uh,
0: let us know how it goes. But finish law school. Definitely finish there. law school. You don't quit something. Don't pull the ripcord on law you school d- you when you've been, you're don't. in your third year.
1: No, I mean, like like I said, like I had to I had to stay in the job I was doing for a period of time yeah. to get out. There's a transition period. It doesn't have to be tomorrow that you stop right. going to that office.
0: I was still practicing law when I was writing, writing Finding Ultra. Like right. I... You know, I, I you know that idea. That's in the book. There, I it's, it's a, there's a tension between, and we can close with this idea. Like, there's this tension between um, wanting to be responsible. So you're straddling two worlds, right? Like you have you you have your foot in the new thing, and you're still holding on to the old thing. Um, sometimes that's the responsible choice because you got bills to pay. But at the same time, on an energetic level, there's there's something about that that inhibits the growth because as long as you're holding on to the other thing because you're afraid to let go because you're uncertain about what the future might look like or what it'll bring you're actually preventing yourself from really embracing that opportunity mm-hmm. so at some point you do have to let go and not be stridling you know two yes, different worlds at I the agree. same time but that's not to say that I'm giving you permission to be irresponsible in that regard. Like their timing is important with these things.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree and 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 for me the timing just becomes it just like happened like that other work just stopped coming, right. you know, and that, and yeah. like that that could happen. So it's it's a it's you know what's cool is that you're 24 and that it's all out there for you and it's it's very exciting time. So try to also enjoy it even though it's stressful. Cool. Um all right, one last one. We're going to Joy-Z.
4: Hi, Rich and Adam. This is Michelle. I live in New Jersey. I'm a mom. I'm also a vegetarian who's trying really hard to be vegan, and I'm excited to try the Shrimu cheeses that I just described to. My question is, did you find your relationship strained, even foreign, or just a lot more work when you had young children? I'm a mom to a one-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl. I work full-time, and my husband cares for our children. We are both amazing, caring, loving, present parents, but we are really struggling to find time for each other, to even show our love to each other. We honestly don't even find any time to talk to each other anymore. I hope you and Adam can share some advice on how to keep connected during this really difficult time, this also really magical time, having two babies that need our attention and care 24-7. I know this time is temporary, and our kids will get older, but our marriage really needs help now. Um, I hope this plays on the air, and I look forward to hearing your advice. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you, Michelle. Uh, I can hear the the strain and the pain in in your voice, and you know to kind of uh, speak to the first thing you said. I mean, you open this question by asking if um my relationship or Adam's relationship has been strained or 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 more work when you had young children and it's like of course of course <laughs> it is uh i don't know anybody who you know wouldn't agree with that right no. like how's it going for you Adam you've got a baby right we now we got into it this morning yeah <laughs> you know like like
1: over something minor um part of it is the exhaustion right and the the tension from just being overtired and, and overworked uh, but for the most part, you know, with us, it's going, it's again, the keep it simple formula, but um, we don't have to. And after mm-hmm. listening to this call, I don't think we're gonna have a second child.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you think when you have the second, that it'll be double the amount of work, but it's actually exponentially more. Right. i like it's, it's not a linear equation and it's quite overwhelming. Like yeah. my heart goes out to you. I empathize with the situation sure. that you're in. It's it's a super hard thing to do. Um And it appears that your relationship is at an inflection point, like this tipping point where you can feel it slipping away. Uh, And what's tricky about all of this is that when you have young children, it feels indulgent to exercise any self-care whatsoever because it's all about the kids. Mm. And because it's such a heightened experience, um, it's very easy to lose sight of checking in with yourself, let alone checking in with your partner. But I don't have to tell you that the well being of yourself and your relationship is absolutely critical to the welfare of these young humans that you're trying to raise. And as indulgent as it may strike you, you've got to carve out time to tend to yourself and to tend to your relationship. Mm-hmm. And it may feel like that's impossible because there is so little time, but it's really a function of priorities. And when you have babies, life is happening to you more than you're kind of in control of your life. And without kind of putting your foot down and erecting, you know, that like sort of setting in motion that priority, erect, you know, creating that priority for yourselves, it's never going to happen. So I think it begins with communication, acknowledging that the relationship is faltering in some regard and having a conversation with your partner about how to get back on track. I think that's the first step. And then saying like every day or you know, today at five or whenever it is that you can work it out, that you're gonna sit down and it's not gonna be about the kids. It's gonna be about, hey, how are you doing? Like, how are you feeling? Like, how can I help you? How can I be, make your life a little bit easier? How can I be in service to what you're trying to do? Mm-hmm. And to develop some mutuality around that. Um, because without that, it's never gonna happen. Like relationships so easily can become transactional in this regard. And it's just about logistics and it's just about the kids. And then you're gonna wake up one day and realize you're not in love anymore. And that's not because something actively occurred that divided you, it's, it's really like a war of attrition,
1: right? What do you mean by transactional?
0: Transactional in the sense that every conversation and interaction that you have with your partner is about the calendar and like who's taking the kid there and, and you know who who has to go to the store right. and you know running the running the 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 household right. essentially okay um, and you think that you're engaged with your partner but you're not because mm-hmm. what you're overlooking is the most important thing which is how you're connecting with each other
1: you think you're communicating because you're talking right. but you're not actually communicating
0: yeah and that you know maybe it's impossible for you to have a date night like I don't know the particulars of your circumstances but you can't tell me that you don't have 10 or 15 minutes to focus on your relationship yeah you know on the daily and i think it's critical like i've said this before also but we have this idea that our lives are static you know when i was in when i was in rehab uh, a counselor said to me every thought that you entertain every word that comes out of your mouth every behavior that you engage in is either moving you towards a drink or away from a drink. And I think that's super wise advice that's applicable across the board to life, right? Like we think we're in a static situation, I'm married to this person, I'll always be married to this person, or I do a podcast, so I'm just gonna do this podcast until I die. Like we're always in flux and things are either growing or they're regressing, right? And the more you can kind of be consciously aware that that static notion is a fallacy. It's an illusion. Um, the more I think you'll be motivated to pay attention to your relationship, to understand that, you know, without that attention that it's gonna wither, you mm-hmm. know, it just, it just will. And um, you've gotta have the wherewithal even when you're exhausted and overwhelmed to make it a priority. So again, I don't think it's, I think it's less a time management thing and more of a priority thing. If it's important to you, and it sounds like it is, or you wouldn't be asking this question, then you can find the time to do it, and you can impress upon your partner how crucial it is at the same time, and hopefully, you know, he feels the same.
1: Yeah, um, I don't feel as qualified to answer this since I'm in the in the foxhole right now. <laughs> yeah, I think that old, makes you. I think that makes weeks. you more
0: qualified.
1: Maybe it does. Um, but I will say um, that I feel for you, and I appreciate the question. Um, and, uh, you know, we communicate all the time about, uh, uh, as much as possible about how we're feeling just to this morning we, we did, but sometimes we don't, sometimes we miss it. Sometimes, sometimes it's impossible to be an amazing parent all the time and be fully present all the time. Right. And that's cool too. It sounds like there's a pressure totally there cool. ar- around right. that. And we don't, I don't, I try not to put that pressure on myself because like, I know that I'm, I'm, I just try to be um as positive and 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 happy and 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 present with Zuma, but I'm not like trying to reach a certain standard outside myself mm-hmm. um, It sounds like you have high standards for parenting, which is awesome. your kids are going to benefit from that but I, I would i would I wouldn't want you to put such a high standard on it that you guys are both um, so worried about that that you're missing just the enjoyment of being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing we're doing well right now—we're doing a lot of things well—but one thing that we're doing well is we're not putting a lot of pressure on things. And if something's going on with Zuma, we're not stressing out so hard on it. Mm-hmm. And you know, like it, the first couple of days, notwithstanding, that's a very stressful kind of yeah. <laughs> time, like where it all got to learn how go. to roll
0: with the trivialities <laughs> but like and the, not turn them into major crises. Right?
1: We we try not to turn anything into a major crisis. Um, but I try to do that on my in in general with my life anyway. It's something mm-hmm. that I've just learned is like is 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 keep it calm and, and when it comes to real life issues like this, uh, I'm I'm real good in a crisis because of that. Um, and so not try try not to make it. Make it worse than it is. Because um, maybe this, maybe the answer to this is actually simpler than you think. Maybe maybe it's not as bad as you think it is. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just that you're not communicating as well as you want, or he's not up for the communication. That could and be part exhausted. of it. And you're exhausted. And you're exhausted. And so maybe the, the answer to this is a simple thing and a positive thing, and it won't be a, a really hard thing to decode. Um, and I would keep that in mind. Because there is something to the placebo effect of like mindset, and to think they, no, you know what? Our marriage might need help right now, but it's we're not in a critical phase. We're just I'm seeing it going in a certain direction, and it's time to kind of right the ship and to take it lightly. And I would I, I think I think taking it lightly in both the way you parent and and the way you uh, work with one another. Could be something that I would offer as could be a positive solution. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm not trying to speak from any real knowledge base other than just my experience the last ten weeks. So take it or leave it, please. Um, but yeah, that's my feeling
0: on well, it. Well, I think that if you feel like it's beginning to falter, that interrupting that flow with some kind of you know prophylactic solution is super important. Yeah, you know, and I think that if that means. Um, just opening the channels of communication, or perhaps that means going to therapy. Like, I think everybody should go to par- therapy, and everybody should go to therapy before they're in a problem. Yeah. You know, this is how you learn how to communicate effectively and learn how to, you know, understand the signals of your partners. Like, the, you know, there's so many things that can be mined from that experience. And, mm. you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, stigmatized and it doesn't have to be, you know, because you're in a crisis no. you know it's just it, it, they're just tools for how to better live together and you know in closing i would say it's important to understand that like this is temporary like you're in a very heightened situation and it, it will get easier but to not use that idea that it's temporary as an excuse to put off dealing with whatever's going on in your relationship like i think that's sort of a An instinct, like, well, this is really hard right now. I know our relationship isn't isn't going great, but let's just get through this, no, yeah, and then we'll deal with the relationship. I think that's misguided. No, if you know, because when you get to that point, it may be, you know, in a in a far worse situation, and God forbid, beyond the, you know, that point of no repair.
1: Yeah, if you know it needs to be addressed, then by all means, address it. It it. it. It
0: has to be. It has to be a priority now. And when in doubt, if all else fails. You can start a podcast with your partner, and that will force you to talk to each other. <laughs> there you go. That sounds <laughs> this very is how healthy. Julie and I have our deepest conversations. <laughs> that sounds very healthy. Yeah. You
1: know, I um, I thought I was in therapy right now. Like twice a month, I come to therapy. It's uh-huh. the Ritual Podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't go that hard on you. No, no, it feels good to talk yeah. to you. On that note, let's land is the your plane. Is your therapist hard on you? Well, I do like my I do a. I do group therapy now with a bunch of dudes okay. and uh and a therapist okay. and you know I get feedback. Like I come in and I say, "Here's what I'm doing and like isn't this great?" And they're like, "Really?" Like, you know, and like, <laughs> "Did you think about this?" And I'm like, "No, I never thought about that." Like <laughs> I get called out on my bullshit. That's interesting. And that happens to me in 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 12 step also. Okay. Um, but it's very direct in this therapy group because we just share about what we're dealing with in our lives and as parents and as professionals or what you know what we need um, feedback on. And what's constantly impressed upon me is the extent to which I'm unaware of my blind spots, mm. which is why you go, right? right? Like, I don't wanna go and get pat on the back. I wanna go and, you know, let people know what I'm going through and have them point out to me what I'm not seeing. Hmm. And I think that's the real value. That's one of the, you know, real values in it.
1: Very interesting. I want to hear about that sometime. Right. But um, I would also offer one last thing. Have you seen Working Moms on on Netflix? If you've have not, not seen, seen Working Moms on Netflix, it's a hilarious female-driven show created by Catherine Reitman, who's connected, you know, the the daughter of Ivan Reitman, uh-huh. legendary Hollywood director and Jason Reitman, Jason. a great filmmaker. <laughs> Um, And she's the stars and, and it's hilarious. It's all about women having babies and navigating life's problems in, uh very, very funny, mm-hmm. uh, sarcastic ways. And that could be a good little blow off steam. I'm watching that with April and that we laugh. It's hilarious. Yeah, so that could I, be a good little trick. Uh,
0: I haven't heard of that. Working moms with an N. All right, right on. All right, we're ending this thing. How do you feel? I feel good. It's been, um, man, it's been a long four years. <laughs> It's been a long four years and it's been a long two plus hours. Every time we do these, I'm like, this is, we're only gonna be doing, this is gonna take an hour. (laughs) And then these things are
1: always like two hours. I don't know. I think I think that, I think we're both long-winded. You turned in 2000 words for 800. I do that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: All right. To be continued two weeks from now. In the meantime, give Adam a follow at Adam Skolnick. I'm at Rich Roll. If you want your question answered, leave us a voicemail at 424-235-4626. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever you enjoy this podcast, send us a comment, uh, leave us a review. As always, check the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. We'll have links up to everything that we talked about today. Um, and in the meantime, pick up voicing change. God yes. damn it. I worked hard on this book.
1: It's a beautiful book. And you it's gotta something
0: get it. to be proud of. People are enjoying it. Richroll.com/slash VC to check that out. Shipping. Globally. What else? That's that's serious. I think we said it all. We said it Let's all. Let's end this.
1: Land the plane.
0: All right. I appreciate everybody who worked hard to put on today's show. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering production, show notes and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing today's show. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Davey Greenberg for portraits. He's taking pictures right now. Davey. Georgia Whaley for copywriting. You could do the rest in your BBC voice. DK for Advertiser Relationships. And theme music, as always, by Ty, Trapper, and Ari. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here in a couple days with another amazing... I don't know who's going up next. We'll figure it out. It's going to be good, though, I promise. Peace. Plants.